Hey everybody, this is uh, Dave Broadbeck, or as I'm also known, Dr. Dave Broadbeck. Uh, I'm also known as Batman. Okay, that one of those was a lie. Uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from a course called uh, Psychology 3106, Animal Behavior. <laughs> So a lot of this stuff you know because it's a lot of it's based on some of the same thing. Um, oh, by the way, you might wonder what these, you know that's the brain from thinking in the brain, but you might wonder about these other two pictures. These two pictures are from the worst Star Trek episode ever called Spock's Brain, where Spock's brain is removed. She, she removes Spock's brain to run their complex. And then McCoy puts this thing on his head to learn how to put Spock's brain back in. And it has, and Star Trek back in the 60s has some of the most great sexist things of all time, right? Like to be in Starfleet as a woman, you had to wear a short skirt and have a big chest. Like that, was, that was the requirement. Right? But you think that's sexist? The most sexist thing ever said in Star Trek was when Captain Kirk says to her, where are your leaders? Where are the men? Which is, like, you watch it go, ooh, that one kind of hurt. It's pretty bad. And it's the, it is literally the worst episode of, of almost anything ever. Like, it's awful. So if you're doing a watch through of TOS, original series, you might skip that one. That's how bad that is. I'll say that about a lot of Star Trek shows. Anyway. And that's... At one point, she says, brain, 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 you use words I do not understand. Like, it's so sexist, because it's a bunch of women, and they don't know anything until they put this thing in their head, and then this thing talks in a male voice. Oh, God, it's sexist. Like, it's just, things like that usually, I usually go, oh, come on, not that time. Oh, and I'm a 52-year-old white man, and that's how much of an offended Okay. So behavior's the output of the nervous system. Particularly the brain, more complicated behavior. I mean, yeah, spinal too, of course. Cerebellum too, of course. But brain in general, we can talk about that. That's fine. Evolution acts on the phenotype, as we know, which is the behavior. And behavior is the output of the brain. So evolution, therefore, is actually acting on the brain with the intermediary of the behavior. And of course, when it's acting on the brain, it's acting on the genes that in particular environments code for certain things to happen in the brain. So what I'm saying is, <clears throat> I can almost do this without a hat on, it's so nice. Um, what I'm saying is that you shouldn't be surprised that evolution's had an effect on behavior and on cognition. Right, so we talked about learning last time, I think, last time? Um, yeah. And it, it's not surprising <coughs> or bizarre to say that behavior has evolved. It just... Does anybody find it? I mean, this is something, by the way, that some people find somewhat controversial, usually in humans. But does it surprise you that it would... Yeah, sorry, that... I don't find it controversial. I just think it's... Interesting how we say that evolution acts on the phenotype, but the phenotype is expressed by the genotype. So then technically it acts on the genotype as well. Yes. So there's a lot of things it acts on because there's kind of a chain of connection. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and the connection isn't even just really, and I'm always oversimplifying when I say the phenotype is an expression right. of the genotype because as we know, it's an expression of the genotype in an environment and it's always interaction. Like I'm using shorthand when I say that the phenotype is an expression of the genotype. Yeah, I think you guys know that. But I guess part of the problem, in fact, that people have that don't aren't conversant in this kind of stuff is that the shorthand that gets used by people who are experts, people take literally. So when I say there's a genetic basis for something, someone says, oh, you mean there's a, gene, a single gene that codes for that? No, that's not what I meant at all. But you took it that way. And I see why you take it that way, because that's what came out of my mouth. Right? Oftentimes we'll say something like, the animal thinks this, and yeah, they probably are thinking. But it's so different from how we think 
that that might not even be the right word to use. Right? So it can be a real, sometimes you're even using the same kind of words, but you're not actually, they don't mean the same thing to two sets of people. Right? This is somewhat controversial about humans among a certain subset of people. Right? One of the things you have to keep in mind about humans, a bit of a digression, humans, is that as I mentioned, we are so related to each other that the variance in human behavior and cognition is so small compared to other species. Like it's it's minuscule compared to every other vertebrate, uh, sorry, every other mammal except like I think it's jaguars. You know, which is weird. Because we were down to like somewhere between two hundred and two thousand individuals. About two hundred years ago. All right, so, but I think we, you accept that, right? Uh, some key terms, most of you know. You know what a neuron is? That's one of them cells that fires. <clears throat> an action potential is when a neuron fires. So you've got a neuron, which is a cell with an axon, and dendrites receives and sends information. And it fires, it sends out information. An interneuron is a neuron that's between, that isn't a sensor neuron, and isn't a motor neuron. Most neurons are interneurons <coughs> in, all, in, in, in all but the simplest of, of animals. So sensory and motor neurons, sensory neurons convert information from the outer world into neural information, and motor neurons make the animal move or behave. Okay. And a receptor is just, in our, for our case here, a receptor is something that does the first bit of converting some form of energy into neural energy. So there are receptors on your eyes. There are receptors <coughs> attached to little hair-like uh, projections inside your ear. Things like that. Okay. I'm not going to ask you those terms. You know them. Just want to make sure that we all, for our purposes, you know what these things mean. Okay. Of course, mods and bats. Best thing ever. Who does not know about mods and bats? You all have heard the mods and bats story? Okay. Yeah. I didn't take So you don't, there's there are a very small number of people here who do not know what mods and bats. This is exciting. I love the mods and bats. By the way, it's not just me that thinks the moth and bat story is cool. Here's a graph of the citations of the moth and bat paper over the years. You can see that people are still citing it, people are still talking about it. You can see, it's from 1957. One of the things that makes this neat, the Moth and Bath story, Moth and Bath story, is that it is from so long ago. This was 60 years ago, right? Wow. People still talk about it. Okay. There's a moth. It's a nuctoid moth. This moth basically has two neurons, and two sensory neurons, so two receptors hooked up to their ears, their ears are in their in the thorax, right? They're in the body. Mons don't have actual ears like ours, but they have ears, they're just here. Okay? And in fact, when you look at this, it, it doesn't look that different from ours in a way. So functionally, it's not that different from ours. You have a tympanum, which is like an eardrum. It's basically just skin. And then there's no, ours would run in their sacs, fine. Maybe you did something, I don't know. I don't want to judge you for your sacs. That's the strangest thing I've ever heard of. There's a lot of candidates for that. So you get these things hooked up, and then, as you can see, then, as this thing vibrates, it's going to make that, those neurons fire. Because you make neurons, other neurons make neurons fire, but you can also make neurons fire by putting pressure on them. So that's just going to make the neuron fire by, it's hooked up to this piece of skin, this eardrum, basically. And when it moves, it's going to make the neuron fire. Okay? 
They're frequency sensitive. Sorry, they're not frequency sensitive, but they don't respond to low frequencies. When I say they're not frequency sensitive, I mean that they don't, they, 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 they don't fire depending upon the frequency of, or at different rates depending upon the frequency of a sound. So you and I have neurons that fire depending upon the different frequency of the sound. So, oh, sounds higher than, oh, that's as close as I ever get to see. Okay? But to a moth, assuming that was a, both those sounds were above the threshold of hearing for a moth, they both, excuse me, sound the same. The difference here is the threshold of hearing for a human, anybody know what the threshold of hearing is for a human? No, in how many hertz? What's the, what's the, what's the frequency? It's 20, 20 hertz. In fact, I doubt anyone in this room can hear 20 hertz. Our ears are damaged at all. And what's the upper limit? About 20,000, and probably very few of you can hear that. I know I can't. I think I'm at about 13K now. I have headphones on blaring punk music all the time, and I live in Western industrial society, and I've wrecked my hair, even though I have a headphone. But I hear no differently than most people my age here. What's that, Sonny? <coughs> Make sure I get one of those horns you always see in cartoons. You gotta speak into here. All right. Now, moths different. Moths can't hear anything below about 110,000 hertz, which is really high. That is so high you can't hear it. Moths, these moths' major predator is, is a kind of bat. Now, bats send out pulses of sound to detect where things are in their surroundings. Bats see things at night with sound. Okay? And they send out ultrasound like this. And then it bounces back. And the rate at which it bounces back, the difference of, of how long it takes to bounce back, they can basically paint a picture with sound. So you can do, we can just make some guesses here. If you were to look at how long it takes an echo to come back, if you were just doing this, okay? You could do a second easily, right? One second or two seconds, sure. Could you do a tenth of a second? Maybe. Could you a hundredth of a second? Not a chance in hell, right? There's no way you can do that. So you probably, so let's, using quarters of magnitude, we'll say a human can do a tenth of a second with some training. A bat can do that. 1.0 times 10 to the negative 9. In other words, it can, a bat can hear and, and paint a picture with sound as well as you can see. That much fidelity. Okay? That's pretty amazing. You can take bats and put them in a dark room, completely light tight, and hang up a piano wire, and they just fly around. No problem. They're just sending out these sonar pulses, just like, just like you see, you know, in a submarine movie. You know, ping, 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 it bounces back, and then you know how far away this, the enemy contact is, right? Give me one ping, Yuri, one ping only. Hunt for October, great movie. Which is what I said, I think I've told many of you guys this, I said that to the sonar, the sonogram technician, my wife was getting an ultrasound with our daughter. Are there any sonar contacts, Mr. Kamenov? And then she said the next time we had a kid, go, you can't say that. And I said, I won't. Then I said, give me one ping, Yuri. One ping only. Because <coughs> I, I can't, you, I, we've met, right? I bang jokes into the ground. It's what I do. Even if it's going to make my pregnant wife mad for about six hours, it's like, <laughs> Oh, that was worth it. Because I, I can tell that again in my career. Yeah? Is that like some sort of neural adaptation that's over the years, or is that just something that... Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what that is. Yeah, that's, that's an adaptation over the years. That's, that's just evolution built the past that way. Because of their lack of eyesight, their like, environment, more than that better hearing? Is that oh, it's, it's basically the niche they're in is, being, is flying around at night. <coughs> and if they're going to do that, not all bats, by the way, are nocturnal. Almost all of them. And if they're going to do that, they're going to have to find a way 
when you're completely in darkness to be able to navigate. That's roosting caves. Back caves, huh? Right? That's roosting caves. And, and they're completely dark. They're going to have to find a way to get around without any light. There's a few ways you could potentially do that, but could you do it with smell? And every evolution works with what it has in front of it. Could you do it with smell? Probably not to the point of being as accurate as somebody can see, or some, or some animal can see. There's really no other way it could be done except with sending an ultrasound. Other animals use ultrasound too. So essentially, like, the way that it sees is through like an ultrasound. Like, you can... Yeah, it's exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, and it's getting a picture that is clearly as detailed as human vision is. I mean, we can't imagine it. But if you think of what an ultrasound looks like, it's probably like that. But we, we can't imagine what the perceptual reality is for a bat. We just can't. Is it apparent in other species? Uh, well, you, you see it in uh, a lot of marine mammals can do it pretty well. Uh, dolphins, porpoises, whales. Yeah. And that's because of their lack of vision? It's a lack of vision. It's that where they are, vision isn't horribly useful. Because bats can see. This expression, blind as a bat, actually isn't appropriate. <laughs> because two things, first of all, it's really offensive. No, it's not. I'm kidding. Um, the first thing is that actually bats see just fine, except that seeing doesn't work well when it's completely dark out. But they can see, and you know, when they wake up, or so when, they go, when the sun starts to get up and they, they fly back to their caves, they use vision. They use vision just fine. It's, it's pretty rare when an animal develops. When, when, when vision is selected against, when eyes are selected against, those people like fish we talked about. But they never leave caves. This is, yeah, brought up the environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the environment selecting over eons, over epochs. Yeah. It's very cool. It's very cool, yeah. And the other cool thing is that the moth, because of the main predator, has to be able to detect when a bat's coming. Because if they don't, there's no more moths. Okay. So, you have a really simple thing here where you've got the, the ear and the wing muscle on the other side. It's that simple. It's almost straight through. As you can see, it's a couple of neural, a couple of of neurons, and then a sensory neuron. So we've probably got two interneurons and going into a motor neuron. That's pretty quick. The titles, by the way, I just meant to be clever. They have no I often forget that not always is everybody a native English speaker. And then I've often had like international students come up afterwards and say, what is the thing about earwax? Oh, nothing. Yeah, I'm being pretty funny, pretty funny in English. I realize you're, I, I'm probably, I can't do jokes in your language, so they're all in English. So there's two, two neurons. There's the A1 and the A2. Now, take a look. This diagram pretty much tells you what's going on. This is neural activity. This is the firing. Okay? And then this is a sound. You'll see hardly any firing. In fact, almost random. And then it hits a certain threshold of how loud it is, and then it just fires. That's A1. And that's, it's going to be louder with a closer bat, isn't it? Of course. Study something like this. This is something that was very like intense to just. Yeah, first, especially for 1957. So, how, how do they measure something so you, uh, you have a, you have a moth, and you put an electrode, micro electrode, across the neuron, the A1 neuron. They had microscope back then, so we can do that. And then you play a ultrasound. But the, you know what I mean? The, the amount, of, the amount of fire? Yes. Oh, yeah. That, what, you have that hooked up to the, what the electrode does is it detects changes in um, <coughs> current. So it can detect fire. And the way it used to be done back then is it would actually play a sound in an amplifier. You click, 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 and you record it. You can't have any percent. Nowadays, it goes to the Oh, it's neat. Don't misunderstand it. But it's actually, uh, as long as you have a good microscope and you know what you're doing, placing a little a microelectrode, which is thinner than a human hair, across a single neuron, that's a skill. But once you have those lab bench skills, this is actually very easy work to do. It's, just, it's, it's having the skills, the, the motor skills, and also the right gear 
Because you know, when you're moving something that's like a tenth of the, the thickness of a human hair across a single neuron, you don't just do that by hand. There's little adjustments you're making. It's not just like, well, I'll just move it over. Oh, well, it's now a million miles away. Seems like a difficult experiment. Oh, it's probably a lot more difficult then than it is now. But the, the basis of it is exactly the same today. Yeah. So A2 also, when say two fire, only with very loud sounds. But also, <coughs> it starts to level off after a while. It likes pulses. That's send out pulses. So it's tuned into pulses. But it's tuned into very close back pulses. So A2, when A2 fires, it's very close back, it's very loud. And they're both hooked up for to detect pulses of sound. Pulses of sound, right? Which is what bats send out. Bats are really neat animals. First of all, flying mammals, that's, that's already cool. And they fly differently. You ever, seen, like, you ever see a bat flying and you think, that wasn't a bird. Something was wrong with that bird. It's flying wrong. And you realize, ooh, that's a bat. Well, bats will come up again. I love bats. When we talk about altruism, bats will come up. Vampire bats will come up. <laughs> it's very scary. <laughs> oh. It's in 3D. So what happens here, when the A1, it shouldn't actually say that way, the opposite way, because it's hooked up across. When the A1 on the left-hand side fires, okay? So I like to demonstrate this by pretending someone here is, so you're, the, so Joe, Joe's, he's a, he's, a, he's a bat. I'm a moth, and he's sending out his ultrasound, don't send out any ultrasound. So he's sending out, we couldn't hear it anyway, so what's happening? You can pretend if you wish. Um, I start to, it detects here. That makes this wind beat faster than this wind. Right? What's that going to do? Turn me away. Then they get to be even, and then I fly away. Except that's not how bats fly. I don't think anything flies like That's pretty cool. So my course is now correct 180 degrees away from evil bat Joey. Da -da -da. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to tell your friends about me. I'm Batman. <laughs> That's a great moment in that first Batman movie with Michael Keaton. It really is a great moment. At our wedding, we had that great lines from movies interspersed with music. We just made our own tapes to play. DJ, pff. I'll pick the music, thank you. And then between each song, there were like little quotes from movies. And that was one of them. Another one, of course, was, you know, stay here, I'll be back from Terminator. And obviously, <coughs> our great sonar contacts, Mr. Kamaroff. It was all set up for the future. So, so this is cool, right? Like, it's neat. It's, it's a simple two neuron here that is enabling a bat to do calculus. Because that's what it's doing. Direction of distance, yeah. What happens if the bat is behind the moth? Oh, it's behind the moth? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what, like straight behind? I'm flying, this is a good, thank you, you're segueing perfectly to the next point. This is wonderful. I'm flying totally away from Joey. Joey's he's quick, he's a bat. So he's getting closer and closer and closer. He gets so close that the A2 neuron fires because it's really loud. What A2 does is I just go crazy. I start flapping everywhere, becoming unpredictable. So when turn around, maybe, I oh, maybe, but I'm, I'm unpredictable. The back can't predict where I'm going. I'm turning off all inhibition of my nervous system. I like, I'm like a chicken that's had its head cut off. Right? I've turned off all inhibition of my nervous system. So the reason, for example, that chickens run around after you cut their heads off is it because they're still alive and they're ghost chickens. Mm -hmm. Though you can pretend that if you wish. 
It's because you've turned off all the inhibition of spinal reflexes because you've snapped their head off. So their legs start running around. Right? This is what happens here. So a two-neuron ear is encoding where a predator is in three-dimensional space. It's doing vector mathematics. It doesn't know it's doing it, but that's what it's doing. Distance and direction. You got a question, Batman? Um, with the models, is that only when it's auditory? Um, yep. Because they also move not around the light. That would just be something. Oh, sure. That's a different thing. Okay. This is just for this is just hooked up to their ears. Sure. Right. And it's in this in these mucktoid moths. It's actually hooked. It's it's it's. They are so preyed upon by this one bat species that that's all that that ear is doing. It's a bat detecting ear. It doesn't do anything else. They can't hear you. A moth can't hear you. A moth. Like it can't hear you because it's so high. Like you're so below the threshold of hearing. Right? How's it going, moth? They don't know what that is. Not only can they not speak English, they can't hear it anyway. So that's pretty neat, right? So it shows that you can get a very complicated, what looks like a very complicated, very cognitive looking system for something, something made out of two neurons. Oh, there's also a neuron I didn't tell you about bees. There's really three. What bee does, it detects if the, if the moth's um, wings are covering the ear or not covering it. So that can say, is it above me or below me? It's pretty cool. So, we also, now, more complicated animals like cats have certain cells in cortex back here in occipital lobe that respond to different line orientations. So we have different line orientations here. So straight up and down doesn't fire very much. Uh, what's that, 45 degree angle? Fires a little. But this way, that's going to be a what? 45, 135. Look at how quickly that much that fires. So that's saying that the, these cats have special cells in their cortex. And you do this the same way. You find a cell, you put a microelectrode across it, and you show the cat some pictures. And you detect them in the cell fires. So there's Hubel and Weasel. David Hubel and Torsten Weasel. I mentioned the king of Sweden because they won a little something called the Nobel Prize for this. One of the neatest things that ever happened to me is, is, is um, David Hubel once asked for one of my articles. And I'm sure it was like his secretary or something. No, because it used to be that we didn't have, all the articles weren't on the internet. You couldn't just search them. It used to be that you'd take a look, you would get a thing, and it would say upcoming articles at the end of a, a journal uh, issue. The next issue, they tease the next issue with titles. Seriously. In our next episode of Journal of Experimental Psychology and Behavior Processes. And you'd see that. And then if you liked it, you thought, oh, I want to read that. You'd take a little postcard. Everybody had these little cards. Called a reprint request card. And you filled it out. Dear Dr. Blank, I would really like to read the article. Could you please send me a copy of Blank? Here's my address. And I got one once from David Hubel. And it's like, he won a Nobel Prize, and he wants to read something I wrote. I'm sure it was just his secretary that was a keyword. She was like, it's like anything with the word, I don't know, space, spatial, because it's spatial frequency. It's probably what it was. But I like to think that actually he's really influenced by me. And that's how he won a Nobel Prize, and he was really influenced when I was in elementary school. <laughs> so it's pretty neat, though, right? Isn't this cool? Like, so we have these cells that respond to line orientation, and that's in cats. Okay. You understand that, by the way, how that works? It's pretty simple, right? Now, Dave Parrott, that's actually a picture of him. That's taken in the 80s. He's um, quite a character. He's, as you can see there, wearing silver pants, as you do. He's found cells in monkeys that fire when specific monkeys are shown. They're shown pictures of specific monkeys. So you know about you with the grandmother cell, the idea that there's a cell that fires when you see your grandmother, and that's how you detect that you see your grandmother. 
People used to joke, yeah, look, is there a grandmother cell? It's like, yeah, probably. Because there's like a Steve the monkey cell, and an Eddie the monkey cell, and a Jane the monkey cell. Please. So let's just say, for example, the Steve cell yeah. does not fire when it sees any other monkey aside from Steve. That's the idea. Yeah, yeah. right? And because we can't even tell there's some individual monkeys. They all look like monkeys, but that's right. Like we all macaques, all squirrel monkeys, I'm not saying all various monkeys all look the same, but all the individual monkeys of a certain species, you look at them and go, it's a monkey, I don't know. They can tell different, different faces from each other. So are those cells created at the, or at the time of perception? Oh, I think they're created after the animal learns those individuals. Yeah. <coughs> So we have a hierarchical network. Hewlings Jackson talked about this and talked about the Hewlings Jackson principle of brain behavior, which is the idea that nervous systems are hierarchical and parallel. Different levels, but all happening at the same time at each level. So you'll have one level that's detecting <coughs> certain characteristics that then synapse onto another set of neurons and detect another one, etc. And the chance that there's only one Steve the monkey cell seems unlikely. There's going to be thousands of them. So you can, if there was a dance and damage your brain, you can still recognize Steve the monkey. Or hundreds. Or grandma cells. By the way, he's the reason I'm an experimental psychologist. It's got nothing to do with the pants. But in 1987, I was an undergraduate research assistant in the psych department at Western. And I had a, um, uh, an insert for the summer. So you apply to the Natural Science Engineering Research Council, and you write a little research proposal, and you, they look at your marks almost exclusively, because you're a kid, you don't have any idea how to write a research proposal. And that was going into fourth year, so two thirds of the fourth year. And I wrote this thing, and I got, I got this money. So I did this science in somebody's lab. And this guy shows up, and there's science all over the apartment, because they'd be for talks, and one of them said, a single cell recording in monkeys. That's what it said. And then it said it was going to be Dr. David Parrott, FRS, which means Fellow of the Royal Society. That's serious shit. That's Charles Darwin. You know, that's real stuff. That's Isaac Newton. And it says St. Andrews University, which is one of the great ancient universities in Scotland. It's on a par with Cambridge and Oxford as far as prestige and also how old it is. So I think, oh, this will be fantastic. Plus, it'll be some really cool old guy that's either Scottish or English. Pretty crummy campus. St. Andrews? Yeah. Well, then he's right on the, you know, the, the golf course where they play the British Open. It's more posh, you know, so I guess people like it. It's a good school. They got a killer <coughs> psychology department. And so I'm like, what the hell? I've got to go to this thing. It'll be fun. It's a free talk by an obviously an eminent scientist. I walk in, and back then, um, so it's late 80s. I probably mostly look like I'm a member of that called the Buddy Band, if that makes any sense to anybody. You can Google that and you can see who they are. The band. Um, anyway, I walk, a guy walks in, and he's standing up at the front of the class of a room probably a little bigger than this, because it's for a very small. Probably EW uh, 200, you know that one there? That's there's probably that size. And this guy comes in, he's got purple pants on, a black leather motorcycle jacket, a green mohawk, and he walks in and goes, right, we're going to talk about some single cell recording in some monkeys today. And I'm like, there's no dress code in this job. I want to be one of them. <laughs> That's a th I can just play and do science-y and talk in front of people and they, they, they have to listen to my main jokes, plus there's no dress code. So really, honestly, a lot of that right there, I went, well, that's it. That's what I'm going to do for my, the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm serious. That was, that, that, I mean, I was close. That put me over the top. He's a good guy and a very smart guy. Hippocampus is, as I say here, everybody's playing around. Every single person who decides they want to determine where something happens in the brain. The first place they seem to look is hippocampus. 
My friend Rob has a t-shirt that says that, the hippocampus, everybody's playground, and it has a little fade away bar. You have to get really close. To, and it's one of those t-shirts that like no one gets, which is the best kind of t-shirt. Most of you probably don't know what Rock'em Sock'em Robots are, but anyway. Rock'em Sock'em Robots, that's what's on my t-shirt. Do you really know what that's still? Because they don't make them anymore. They still run the 90s? Of course, the 70s also had little spikes in the end. No. The world was much more dangerous back then. So it's, I talked about the great ARMAs that they developed by Olton Samuelson. Here's an ARMAs. Okay? So we got eight arms reaching in the end from the center, like the spokes of the wheel. Hippocampus, hippocampal lesions affect working memory. What is working memory? This is the memory that an animal needs to solve a particular trial of a task. And they don't affect reference memory, which is what the rules of the game are. So what do I mean by that? So let's say we had baited this arm, this arm, this one, and this one. So we picked four arms randomly, and they're baited every day. What's the animal have to remember? What's one of the rules of that game? Go down those four arms, because they have food. The other four don't have any food. Don't go down there. Right? Now, the, the working memory part of it is, what arms have I been down today? What arms have I been down today? So again, what did I say? This one, this one, this one, this one, right? So if you leash, you, you teach this to the animal, to a rat, and then you leash and hit the canvas, you put him back on, he still goes down these four arms, the ones that were baited before. But he can't remember which ones he's been down. So he might go something like this. Here, down here, down here, 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 so he remembers before he's supposed to go down. He just can't remember if he's been down yet. Same thing happens with something called the Morris Water Maze. Uh, the working reference thing. Morris Water Maze is a okay. So it's not really a maze. It's a pool. But they call it a maze. I don't know why. It's about that big around, so a little over a meter in diameter. And it's got, you know, 10 centimeters of liquid in it, and just about nine centimeters below, at one point, is a little platform. Rats don't like swimming. So they like to get to that little platform. So you fill the thing up with not water, because they can see it, but it'll pick liquid. Okay? Skim milk's used a lot. So they use skim milk because skim milk isn't actually food. It has one use. It's for filling up with more water mix. You want to drink skim milk, why don't you also start eating margarine? Like just live a little. Just a little. How about drinking real milk and putting butter on it? Just live. What, you, you drink skim milk? Really? What's wrong with you? It's too much pressure. I hate the cream in milk. You need the good part. You don't like the good stuff in milk. I hate the part that tastes good in milk. I will eat butter. Good, good. So I have to eat less maybe. Just get close. Really? Tastes like water with chalk in it, right? Like it's awful. I can't. To each their own. If it's your taste, that's great. I, I don't like to criticize people's tastes, except in this case, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> so you fill this thing up, and then the rat doesn't like swimming, so the rat learns very quickly, I better get to that platform, and he stands up. And you take him out, and you drive him off, and because there's no fat in it, it's not like anything can go rancid on the rats, and you just clean him off very quickly, dry him off, and he's fine, because you're basically drinking white water. So. I'm going to come up with a nickname for the involved skim milk. I don't know what it is, but I'll work on it. So, rats are good at this. Same thing. Working memory part of this, I'm oh, sorry, reference memory part of this is I got to find out where the, uh, oh yeah, the thing's here. This is where the platform is. Working memory would be something like, have they moved it around today? Because what you can do is once they learn it, you move it. They learn it, they swim to the right place, and then it's like, oh, well, then they start swimming around and they, 
randomly search, find the right place. Then you put them back in, they, again, they're fine. Try that with one that you've lesioned, he's screwed. Keeps going back to the same place, going, where's the platform as he treads water? That's my rat treading water impression. Pretty strong, I think. So hippocampus is really important in spatial memory in rats. It's important in spatial memory in people, too. So. Cab drivers in London, England have bigger hippocampus than non-cab drivers. You think of that. That's neat, right? That makes sense. It that makes complete sense. It's just amazing that it actually affects their neural development. At a level that's measurable. Everything affects your neural development at some point, but at a level that's actually measurable. Especially considering what age did they become a cab driver? Uh, that, cab driving in London is a career. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You usually start at what? Mid-20s. Okay, so yeah. how much brain development occurs after? No, that's the thing, I would think, right? The other thing is that you've got to realize cab drivers in London, England are basically they're tested so severely before they're given a license. Yeah. Um, they basically are human GPSs for London, England. So those, um, the black cabs, the, the cool-looking cabs in London, the one where you get in and it's like, it's, if you go in on the inside, it's like it's actually... It's bigger than this room. They're amazing. And um, those guys are special. Like, they're tested very severely, so they literally know everything about the city. And they've done this by driving around and practicing and studying, and then the hippocampus is bigger. It's freaking amazing. Hippocampus is so much everyone's playground that, in fact, there's a journal called Hippocampus. It's a brain region with its own journal. Uh, there are cells in hippocampus, first outlined in a book that you can get for free, by the way, because the copyright got screwed up, and O'Keefe and Nadell just put it online and said anybody could have it, we don't care. There are cells in the hippocampus that only fire when it is in a certain place, called place cells. Oh, by the way, O'Keefe won a Nobel Prize for this. That was cool, a couple years ago. So they only fire when the rat is in a certain spatial location. The world isn't that simple. Right? It's not quite that simple. But it's still pretty cool. Okay. This segues a bit into the stuff we talked about the other day, food storing bird stuff. And I know you know this, but Corvids, parents, and sitins. Corvids, by the way, are crows and nutcrackers. Parrots are titmice uh, and chickadees. And cichids are nuthatches. They're food storing, they store seeds in insects. There are other food storing birds. You know what shrikes are? A shrike is a kind of bird, it's, it's a carnivorous bird, and it picks up and kills small rodents, and then it impales them on sticks. That's badass, right? Um, and that's how they store food. That's kind of cool. <laughs> now again, evolutionarily, most songbirds don't hang out here. They leave. They respond to a fluctuating food supply by leaving. by the way, what we would expect would be if, if birds were encountering a feeder, right? That always had the same amount of seeds in it. <coughs> so the same rate of return, they should eat those seeds. But seeds, when the rate of return is higher, low, higher, low, when it, when it fluctuates a lot, they should store those seeds. Does that make sense? Right? We should expect that. And evidence has been found, though it's kind of weak, um, that in fact that's the case. That if you have a fluctuating food amount of return from a certain feeder, they're more likely to fly to take those seeds away to That was an honors thesis done with me, by the way, 
by one young, <coughs> at the time, student named Dwayne Keel. Yeah. yeah. Where was that? In Newfoundland, yeah. Yeah, I've known Keel for years. He used to babysit my children. I've known him since he was 19. He was like, I, th I think I taught him intro. No, I didn't teach him intro. He, he was in the main campus for that year. I taught him learning animal behavior. I taught him this actual class, but it had a different member in Newfoundland. We can look at his presentation. It's on my computer. I have everybody's presentations from ever. You want to know what grades he got? We can look that up. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's like, that wouldn't violate confidentiality. I think you got an A. Yeah. This is on. Great stuff. This was on uh, human uh, sperm competition. Anyway, yeah. Uh, I just remember, I remember the, the talk. So was there um, a common ancestor of these birds that at one point there was a disruptive pressure that caused one to leave and to stay. I think probably the saying comes first. Okay. Yeah, and then the, the food storing lifestyle is no way to Yeah, that's just a guess though. There's no one really knows. <coughs> yeah, but I would think the outgroup is every other. I mean, if you look at within, it's easier within the UK because you can look at uh, marsh tits and great tits, and they both come from a common ancestor. Great tits are non stores, and marsh tits are stores. Blue tits store and cold tits don't as well. I think that's right. Um, and it seems to me the pressure, like leaving or not, comes first. It has to. Why? Now, not necessarily. I guess you have storing first, which allows you to stay. I can I can make a story up either way. I know because there's costs to both, right? Of course. So, yeah. But would you maybe the bigger cost would be having to expend all that energy to get to that different location? But then it could also be a cost of risking your survival if you don't find enough food. Yeah, but the benefit, of course, is that when the good territories show up in the early spring, you got first pick because you've been around all this time. Other guys got to fly back from Tunisia or wherever. So I mean, there are longer term, even within the animal's lifetime, benefits. That, um, if you look at something like a Clark's Nutcracker, they have all kinds of cool specializations, not just memory. They've got these sublingual pouches they can hold a couple hundred seeds in to store, fly around and store it. Um, they have their breeding season starts three weeks earlier than any other songbird in the American Southwest because they can. So they get the best territories, right? And they start breeding early, earlier than any other uh, songbird species. Yeah. If our nervous system is robot, we take uh, input from the environment, right? Yes. So let's say a species that doesn't have a very developed nervous system, how would they evolve if they're not getting as much input when they have a very rudimentary nervous system? Well, it isn't, so, so you're saying how does their behavior evolve? Because other things can evolve without their being behavior. Not just their behavior, but um, like the, you know the environmental influence, how the bat is in a cave and it has more developed behavior. Sure. How come something that doesn't have a very developed <coughs> system can evolve? Because it selects for on the phenotype, you know, sorry, yeah, phenotype and phenotype is all your characteristics, not just your behavior. So the nervous system doesn't... It's not the only thing that's... You no, know, of course not, because why would we have that skin? That's a very weird thing to think of. But I mean, that had to evolve at some point. They would have to have a brain to have skin. Right? Plants evolved. They don't have any nervous system at all. Maybe it's a difficult question to ask. But... No, I, I, yeah, I, I, there's, there's something in there you're trying to get out of that you're getting a problem. Or I'm not going to understand it. Because like, all of the input comes from the, our nervous system. Yes. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay. No. No. Now I got you. Now I got you. But the input comes that way, but that doesn't mean that the only thing that can be affected is like that. For example, you think the salt and pepper moth that has when they the morph what they would look like typically they look like um, white with black specks on them, mm -hmm. right? Now when the environment changes and because it's, there's soot everywhere in the UK and it's black, you don't need a nervous system to develop your coloration, right? But the pressure is on changing your appearance. Now, I'm not changing it like purposefully, but when the morph shows up, the mutation shows up that's all black, it gets selected. Well, yeah, that's going to be more likely to survive because it's harder to see for birds to eat it. So there doesn't have to be a nervous system there to do that either, right? Well, the environment, the chance comes from the random mutation. The environment is what does the selection. 
But it's, it's, it's also chance in that if you're black and the trees are covered in soot, so it's like a chance that the environment correlates with oh, yeah. soot sure. right? Yeah. yeah, and most of the time, by the way, those mutations are no good. But then they go back after? Yeah, after, uh, after when they started having environmental laws in the UK after the war. Yeah. Then you don't see the black ones anymore because they get eaten by birds. Right? So without the stored food, these birds die. So we'll talk more about these cognitive differences as we go along. They'll come up a lot because I know about them. And because I get to mention myself. So here's some, here's some pictures. That's a, I don't know if that's a chicken or a marsh tit. I can tell you that's how close chickadees and marsh tits look to each other. I literally have no idea. Uh, that's a Clark's nutcracker. They're about, they're much bigger than the chickadee. They're the size of a pigeon, small pigeon. <coughs> that's Sir John Krebs, Baron of White and Wood. The principal of Jesus College at Oxford, not anymore, there. So that was my supervisor, who's right down there, Sarah Shuttleworth. That's her walking down South Park Road in Oxford. When she was up for this like, lifetime, lifetime Achievement Award, we all got, a few of us got together, all the students, and we wrote like a letter supporting it. And we thought, let's get some eminent people that Sarah did stuff with and get them to support it too. So we got, we got John Krebs, whose father discovered the Krebs cycle. So his father's one of the lawyers. And John writes this very nice letter supporting it. And then about five years later, she wins the award. And I think I haven't talked to John in a long time. Because my friend Rob, who also helped out with the nomination, he's the one who talked to John. So I get this thing that Sarah's won this award. So I'm thinking, how do I, I find John's email? He's the principal of Jesus College. So his email address is principal at jesus.ox.act.pk, which already is good. But then also, since I've talked to him, he's become a knight, because he's sir. He's also a baron, and he's a member of the House of Lords. He's literally my lord. <laughs> so then, what's the, like, what's the, hey, like, how do you talk to, what do I, how, so I just started the email with, hey, John, <laughs> thinking I'm North American, and he was like, great news, Dave, this is all very good, but I, I sat there for about 15 minutes going, I don't know. Because, like, is he going to think I'm being sarcastic if I save my lord? Because that's weird. Because it's weird. I'm not going to call him. It's a guy I know. I'm not going to call him my lord. I've known him since I was like 22. I'm not going to say, Your Highness, or whatever the hell you're supposed to. No, I'm not going to do that. So I just start with, with, Hey, John. And that is the. This is the. This is how interested people are in this thing. There's a, there's a whole building at Western called the Advanced Facility for Avian Research. It's as big as our bioscience building, and it's for nothing but bird research. And that's them, when is that? That's probably two years ago. Let's see. That's David Sherry there, Scott Shackleton. Most of these people are graduate students. That's my daughter, right there. So like that's, look at all the graduate students working on birds. Bird behavior. And they've got their own building. They have a wind tunnel in the woods <coughs> and simulate bird migration. It's so awesome. It's also full of signs about you know danger, danger, don't go in here and turn it on, things like that. But when it starts up, it sounds like you're in the Battlestar Galactica and they're getting ready to jump to another sector. Like a, it's awesome. I've talked about the other day, and I'll show you the data, Dave Sherry's group and John Krebs' group both looked at hippocampal volume and food storing lifestyle. So here's some graphs. This is brain volume, this is hippocampal volume, and you would expect that to have a straight line, which it does, but look at the ones on top, those are all food storing ones. So their, brain is, their hippocampus is bigger than you would expect due to their body size. This graph here makes it a touch clear. Food storing birds here, non storing birds here. 
That's actually a picture of a brain slice in that's hippocampus. This is it right here. Okay. So it's not only size, it's actually also the number of cells. And when they started that, they actually had people, usually like you guys, undergraduates, that would come in and for no pay count cells. Look at a microscope for one, two, now they have software that does it, which is much easier, I imagine. Hampton Cherry Journal with Kurgle and Ivy, which is the strangest, uh, that's the law firm I would not send people to, because I know those people and none of them are lawyers. Um, Looked at food storing and not how much you rely on food storing and how big your hippocampus is. And the, the story about this here is that if you look here, black-capped chickadee relies on stored food more than the Mex Mexican chickadee, more, chickadee, more than the bridled titmouse, and by all kinds of measures, it has a bigger hippocampus. My friend Rob Hampton spent six weeks camped out by himself trapping birds in Arizona in the mountains in winter. You might think Arizona, that's nice, not in the mountains, it's cold, and he was in a tent for six weeks trapping birds. And then he had to get him across the border, which was apparently really fun. Even pre-9-11, not a good time. Cherry and Vaccarino, this is actually quite neat. They had birds, chickens store food. <coughs> they lesion hippocampus and half the birds. They still searched. They still stored seeds, stored seeds and searched for them. They just didn't know where they were. So they, they fly in, they go, oh, I'm a chickadee, I store food, it's what I do. They go back in, they go, this is what I'm supposed to find the seeds, right? No idea where they are. They don't look around randomly. So they, do they not know where they are, or do they not know where the food is, or is it both? Dude, um, <laughs> that's a good question. Sorry, sorry. It's sort of the next one of those questions you ask when you're high. Um, are you high? Uh, how do you know the bread that you see is the same as the bread that I see? So, it's funny how everybody asks that question when they're high at one point, right? No, it's hard, right? you must know where they are because they recognize the room and then it's a place to sleep. They also are able to fly and not fly into things, so the vestibular sense must be okay. It's a really neat question though. I don't know how you actually get it now. But I'm guessing they know where they are. Yeah. Because they've been there before. And also they stored it. Yeah, but they don't remember where it is, but Was it they remember storing something? Probably not. But they know that they're supposed to be lucky for something. Yes, but that's because they, before, the, before we started the experiment, before we lesioned them, we had them store and recover seeds in that room. Oh. They had a room like this little, about half the size. They've done it before. So it's not just that they're learning. If they were flying into that room for the first time, they might, if they, there were seeds available, they'd probably store a few of them because they're chickens. It's their job. It's what they do. That's a neat question. I'm going to pose that to some people over the next couple of weeks. Friends of mine, see what they say. Because it's actually a really neat question. I mean, they know where they are such that it's a room they've been in before because they've been there before and they've looked at the reference memory work many part. They also, like I said, they can fly. They don't fly into things. It doesn't affect their behavior in any other way except their And they search, too. It's their ability to find it. Do they re remember storing itself? I don't know the answer to that question. I, can, I don't know how the hell you get at that. That's a neat couple of questions there, guys. Hold on, both of you. So you can see that they just, they can't find their seats. They still start. So, Barney and Nottebaum, Fernando Nottebaum does some really cool stuff, mostly with songbirds, uh, bird song. And he's the guy they found out that when birds sing, 
they, well, we, we all knew that birds mostly songbirds sing in the in the spring and they don't sing in the fall. And there's a part of their brain called the HVC that I can never remember what it stands for. It's a, only a bird part of the brain. It's like hyperstratum ventrum ventrale something accessorium frontum. Something like that. Anyway, the HVC grows uh, in the spring, it shrinks in the fall, and HVC controls song. Nice. We don't think of neurogenesis that often, right? So what Nottebaum, Bernie and Nottebaum did is, is they seem to, they, they said, let's see if the hippocampus grows and shrinks in chickens. They store in the fall. And they, look, they found, isn't this nice? There's only one downside to this, no one's been able to replicate it. Very cool paper, but it's not been found since. People have tried it in the lab. They've tried it in the wild. This is, these are wildcard birds. So I don't know what happened, why that happens. What were the, um, their findings with the campus? It, it grows in the fall, and it shrinks and then in winter, and then it shrinks in the summer. Because they don't need, the notion is they don't need it anymore to find sort of food. They, they don't need it to be as big. So there's been similar experiments? People have tried. Nobody's been able to replicate it. They didn't find a change in, in volume? Mm -mm. Did you cheat? No. Because there's no, first of all, I assume people aren't, are not trying to do that. But secondly, this is a really famous science. There's no reason to do this. It doesn't discover anything anyway. Right, so you're going to say. So that's a nice graph. It's a beautiful, it's true, it's all, it's all great. Yeah. It's yeah, it's beautiful, and I remember when it came out, and this is like, so 94, um, and we all looked at it, and well, yeah, we all figured that probably happened. Like, nobody was surprised by it. And for years, everyone was saying, remember that? And then I've heard, I know a number of people who tried to make it happen in the lab, and have also caught birds, and they haven't had any luck. That's all I can say. But I, there's no reason for somebody like Fernando and Audubon to let somebody like that to so it's something to do with measurement or something, it must be. But if it hasn't been replicated, as pretty as this is, what's that? I don't know. See, because this, this is a Barnier's thing. Not a bomb does bird song. I told you about cowbirds, so I'm not going to go too much into it. Um, first people do this was. Um, Sherry Jacobson Gollin, there's a brown-headed cowbird. I think, did you guys, those of you who follow me on Facebook saw the, uh, posted a thing about the, uh, the mafia hypothesis thing, right? On Facebook. Cowbirds are nest parasites, females have to remember where nests are, and also the state of the nest. So that's a pretty space-related task. Males don't have to. Guess what, of course, there's some data. Hippocampal volume, males to females. So we have two other closely related species and black uh, They're nice looking birds, aren't they? Isn't that a nice looking bird? But it's a good looking animal. And then you look at its behavior, it's just an evil, just nasty, nasty, evil nastiness. All right. So here's some conclusions about nervous systems, behavior, brain, evolution. Nervous systems control behavior. Evolution acts on the behavior, which is the phenotype. Therefore, evolution is acting on the nervous system. <coughs> I think the food storing story is the most elegant and simple of these stories because it's the most told. Like it's the most complete one. I'll speak more about it as we go on the course again because it feeds my gargantuan ego. But it is a simple, elegant story. And we're basically done. I mean, this food story story. It's, that's the neat thing about it. It's like people have pretty much figured that out now. There's people who've gone to other problems. And it was one of the first times that people took that version. Remember I talked about Camel's idea of about how to study learning? Um, it was probably the first thing that, where that, uh, that version of, of, of doing comparative psychology was done. So. Questions? 
as an aside, on the test on Wednesday, don't be surprised if it doesn't take you that long. Like, if it takes you 45 minutes, don't be frightened. Okay? on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dr. Dave Broadbeck's Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want, but if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something but if you didn't I unless you're one of my students I really don't care um, the music by the way for each uh, song for each uh, uh, episode <laughs> lecture uh, is uh, available they're all podcast uh, like pod safe music so if you want to uh, find out about the bands there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback uh, if those links don't work just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out um Often I put links, uh, actually, in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.